Hey everybody, welcome to Jock Talk, the podcast of the Adam and Brian. What this podcast will be is everything sports, politics, and life in between. So today is episode one about the virus and how the virus has impacted sports and life in general. What's up, Adam? Not much. How are you hanging in there, Brian? It seems like uh, we've been in this kind of norm for a while, if you want to call it. I don't even want to call it the new norm. I don't like how people are referring it as the new norm. I want to say the temporary norm. You know, I don't, I don't want this to go on any more than we need it to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some changes. But I mean, you're definitely right about that. To call it the new norm, I think, is a little premature. I would just say, let's take it day by day and, you know, not to sound too cliche, but that's really what you got to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it seems like we everyone's been working from home for a while now. Uh, what's it been, about a month, would you say? Yeah, I'd say, well, for me, it's been since like March 13th, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, for the audience, if you could see me, you'd know that I look pretty close to a caveman at this point because I haven't been outside since March 14th. So that's why we're bringing sports talk to you because honestly, there's no sports. That's right. We're getting back to our primitive nature here, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I wanted to segue into our first segment and I just want to talk about how all of this craziness has impacted sports. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, there are no sports, so the impact is pretty huge. But, you know, there's obviously going to be future ramifications. And we're not just going to, you know, jump right back into everyday life and be able to watch sports uh, with, you know, thousands of people next to us. So can you just talk about what you think will happen, you know, in the upcoming weeks? I know a lot of commissioners and league heads are starting to talk about, you know, easing their way back into a semblance of normal and, you know, they want to get the show on the road somehow. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, Adam, you know, as well as anybody that I've been involved in sports, you know, my entire life, somewhat directly, even with you, but as far as what's going to happen with changes, I think you're going to see something similar to what happened with 9-11. You're going to see drastic changes at the beginning. And then as time goes on, people are going to pull back a little bit and try to get back to what that normalcy is. Now, in terms of what, what changes are going to be made, I really think they're going to have to finish out at least the sports year this year with no fans in the stands. Um, you know, beyond that, I think eventually we'll get back to, you know, what we knew is the norm. But financially, the biggest impact you're going to see is I wouldn't be surprised if they start doing pay-per-view, you know, for regular sports only because the owners, the commissioners, and, you know, all the people that make billions of dollars every year are still going to want to get, you know, as much of that revenue that they've lost 
for the month and a half, two months that they've already been gone, they're going to try to come up with creative ways to get that revenue back. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I you know, I think pay-per-view would definitely be advantageous towards these companies. That would definitely be a way to put money in their pockets. Um, I, I was hearing that uh, the Masters are going to be held uh, pretty soon, actually. Um, did you hear anything about that? I heard that they had canceled um, the regular Masters date, which obviously has already gone by. But um, I knew that they were talking about it. I hadn't heard much because, honestly, golf is like the one thing that if I want to take a nap, let's be honest, I put golf on. Well, so I'll tell you what, Brian, when, when sports come back on, I'm going to be watching every damn competition. I'm going to be watching ESPN, the Ocho. I'm going to be watching underwater polo. I'm going to be watching rugby, you know? <laughs> well, you know, Adam, I got a better idea. Why don't you get in the gym and come back and play for coach? <laughs> hey, you know what? This, this might be that event that, you know, precipitates that. I think, uh, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk about was, are we going to appreciate sports more? after this and you know you jokingly say that but you know this has changed people's lives a lot um you know me as someone with a spinal cord injury um i'm not going to get too much into it but being on your butt too much uh, is really bad for your skin um so all this time in the house for me has been really dangerous uh for someone with a spinal cord injury so you know uh for me skin sores and skin pressure stuff has always been something that i had to deal with but being at home for a month definitely doesn't help things. So when you talk about appreciating sports and being able to be active and being someone in a wheelchair uh, that's still able to compete and play basketball, you know, you might, you might be onto something, Brian. I might be back on the court sooner than you think. Yeah. I mean, for just so the audience knows, if you guys don't know, Adam and I have played sports together for many, many years. And, you know, he, we did hockey together, and then briefly he got involved with my basketball team. Uh, shout out to the Roland Celtics. They're all in hibernation at the moment, like all of us. But I think you're right. Um, adaptive sports, especially for those of us in the disabled community, are a huge, not only physical thing, but it's a social thing. So I think in terms of appreciating sports it's it's hard for me to appreciate sports any more than i already do because you know we both know that i have friends that pick on me about watching and doing nothing but sports i prefer to watch sports over the news any day but i think you're right there's going to be things that you know it, we took for granted before that we're not going to take for granted now because it's been gone for what a month, month and a half, pushing closer to two months. So, I mean, but for somebody like you, from an athlete standpoint, I think you're right. It's, it's easier to say you're going to appreciate it more now because you don't have it. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up an interesting point um, that's definitely relevant to what's going on. Sports provide uh, camaraderie and they provide a social outlet specifically for people with disabilities um, that are, uh, you know, uh, wheelchair users or 
um, mobility device users, a lot of times these are their only outlet. Um, a lot of times this is their only way to socialize with other people that have a disability. So I think a lot of people are experiencing a lot of isolation right now because of this COVID situation. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of wheelchair basketball teams aren't able to meet. I saw a really cool video online on Facebook though of uh, the Borp wheelchair basketball team in California, and basically they put together a video where everyone was seen um, passing a ball, and it kind of cut to another wheelchair basketball player catching that ball and passing it to another player. Um, you know, all, all this was spliced together, obviously, but it kind of shows that, you know, they're still trying to connect as a team. And I think that stuff's really important right now. A lot of, a lot of people with disabilities are um, isolated. They're at home. They're scared. They don't know what to do. They're anxious. And I think, you know, uh, putting together these things kind of keep that team bond strong. Well, you know, obviously we'll get into the importance more in depth in adaptive sports in our second episode. But you're right. I mean, it's it's forcing people to be creative and really sort of use technology as an advantage. I mean, but overall, I think it's it's a good thing because while we're practicing social distancing, we have to remember that social solidarity is something that is vastly underrated. And I think that's, if that's one message that we can really drive home through this podcast and through this time, then that's, then we've done, you know, our jobs, not only personally, but professionally as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get back to some of the major, uh, major sports leagues right now. So obviously the commissioners are kind of in this tough space right now, you know, obviously they're in this, you know, predicament where they want to get back to this normalcy where they can, you know, put their athletes back out and compete and have the programming. But at the same time, they want to, you know, follow, you know, rules and guidelines and err on the side of caution and make sure that, you know, none of these players are transmitting um, COVID any further. So if you were, a, a, you know, the commissioner of the NBA or, um, you know, if you were commissioner of the, whatever, NHL, uh, what would you do? What, what do you think the most important to think about? What's the most important thing to think about right now when deciding whether to ease back into having sports? Ooh, that's probably the toughest question somebody's asked me in the last five years. Um, only because, you know, me as a person, I'd love to see sports come back sooner than later. But, I mean, as a commissioner, you have to balance well-being. You know, you have to prioritize well-being. In terms of, like, let's say I was the commissioner of – the NHL, because I don't know about you, but I find the NHL probably the most important that needs to come back in terms of everything right now because the NHL playoffs for me are the most exciting of any of the leagues. Oh, but, for sure. And the NHL has the most to lose. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can debate that because I think baseball is losing quite a bit you know, in terms of popularity anyway. But sure. I think in terms of what I would do is 
I would really like to see them, you know, capitalize on their idea of moving to remote cities that are, you know, colder climates like North Dakota, New Hampshire, places that can handle, you know, the ice in the later parts of the summer, because realistically, that's the best case scenario, you know, for the league to come back. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in terms of NBA stuff, I mean, the NBA playoffs are probably the second most exciting. Problem with the NBA is if you're an NBA fan, which I would say that we both are, the NBA offseason is probably the most exciting part of the whole sport. So, you know, are they going to move everybody to Vegas? I don't know. All I can tell you is football is really the only one that has a chance to survive this whole thing, and that's only because they're in a time frame where they're more or less projected to be active when this thing is quote-unquote over. So, Brian, out of the major sports, out of hockey, basketball, football, and baseball, what do you think is the most important sport in terms of having an audience? What do you th- – so how much of an impact does the audience have? And what do you think sport – what sport do you think is impacted most by a live audience? How can the outcome be uh, affected either by having an audience or not having an audience? Well, let's look at that in two different ways. If we're talking about direct, you know, crowd participation and crowd energy, then NBA playoffs, you know, because look at the TV Garden. Look at Jason Tatum's rookie year, you know, two years ago when they took Cleveland to, you know, game seven of the conference finals. They were within 12 minutes of, you know, beating, you know, LeBron, which for a rookie and that young Celtics team, they fed off of the crowd. So in terms of crowd participation, I'd say the NBA is the most important. But in terms of viewership and giving people something to watch, I think the NHL is by far the most entertaining in terms of you know being able to watch it because you have casual fans that tune into the NHL playoffs because the the thing about the NHL that's unique is you have you know the unique ability in the NHL to have an eight seed upset a one seed that can go all the way to the you know Stanley Cup. Oh absolutely I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, which sport do you think can survive temporarily without an audience the most? Which do I think can survive without an audience? Probably the NHL. I think they're equipped better in terms of TV ratings and overall sport quality 
you know, as opposed to the rest of them, because yes, the NHL has a history of lockouts. They, you know, they were actually the first sport to lose an entire season. But if you look at the way they responded and the way that the sport has changed for the better, people said back in 2004, 2005, during that lockout, the NHL would never come back. And I've, and I've said that the NHL might actually be better now than it was prior to the lockout. So short term, I think they can survive more without an audience than basketball. And it goes back to what I just said about, you know, the basketball people, they feed off the energy in the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that concerns me, obviously, you mentioned the lockout is, I, personally, I think that we can have a, a repeat of what happened the year after the lockout. Um, the viewership was down. Um, people were nervous for the NHL if it was going to even be a sustainable business model. And uh, I see a lot of parallels now. I, I hope, obviously, that doesn't happen. Uh, hockey is, you know, obviously my favorite sport. Um, so it definitely concerns me for the NHL, but uh, we'll be optimistic. Um, I want to move on, though. Uh, I want to talk about this abomination of a horse event. How much of a low-brow, low-production level event can you get? This thing was just a complete disaster, a complete joke. It should have never happened. It, it just it, – I cannot wrap my head around how this was even on TV. Well, Adam, we have now reached the comical point of this podcast. And I say that because you're right. It was such an abomination of an idea and such a desperate attempt to salvage financial, you know, gain that I didn't even watch it. I mean, I mean, if you're going to wonder, might have been able to watch it and be more entertained, to be honest. (laughs) If you're going to put something on a national TV channel, ESPN for that matter, you do not record it with a 1980 calculator. I mean, come on. I, it, it, did you see some of the, the video captured? I mean, it, this thing looked like it was recorded on a Nokia phone. I mean, th- it, this could have been prepared so much better. They could have utilized ESPN's resources. They could have used professional cameras. The production value could have been a whole lot better is an understatement. I mean, they had time to plan this out. And I think this just casts a, a bad, a bad shadow on that, the NBA. I really do. I think. This well, is- I mean, like I said, it was bad enough that first of all, I get that ESPN is considered, you know, still unfortunately considered the worldwide, you know, leader in sports, which that in and of itself can be a whole nother debate. Cause that's debatable. You know, ESPN when I, you know, when you and I were kids, was appointment television. Yes, now Sports, Center, that, Sport, Sports Center was a religion every morning that we. Yes. <laughs> and now you know it's it's kind of the laughing stock of highlight shows because it's not even really a highlight show anymore. It's a bunch of talking parent heads, kind of like us except they get paid way more than we do. But you're right. In terms of production value, I mean, 
they have the resources, why not use them? But in terms of the actual horse competition itself, it was bad enough from the outset, from the idea that I didn't watch it. So to answer your question, have I seen any of the video footage? No, because like I said, the fact that they're bringing guys like Paul the Truth Pierce back, you know, off of his geriatric chair, you know, tells me, okay, they're really reaching here. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you saw his highlights, but he couldn't hit a shot to save his life. It was kind of embarrassing, uh, to be honest. It, it, was, it was a cool idea to have Paul Pierce included, but, I mean, the, the dude can't shoot anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it, the whole thing was kind of just a, a shit show, if we're being honest. Maybe we can utilize him on the rolling Celtics because we all know we love that wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, he's got experience. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, ESPN, obviously, they're a failing network. We won't go into that too much. Um, but It's I, I not on this episode. No. But, you know, they're a failing network. What They need to appeal to a younger demographic. They're getting killed by Barstool Sports. They're getting killed by Bleacher Report. And what, what ESPN doesn't realize is sports and culture are merging, and ESPN refuses to accept that, you know. Um, they refuse to accept the culture aspect. Uh, what Barstool does really good is they're not all sports anymore. You know, they're they're an entertainment and satire website. They know how to have fun, and that's what appeals to younger people. You know, so if they're if ESPN is going to try to do something to stay relevant like this, um, they should definitely consult places like Bleacher Report, uh, Vox, Barstool. Because this wasn't it, my man. No, I mean, and at the risk of, you know, giving one of our friends, you know, an inflated ego, Ryan always talks to me about merging, you know, politics and sports and how, you know, um, Dan Levitard does a great job of merging the two. Now, as a sports traditionalist, you have my angle of, Sure. Do I want to watch, you know, highlights? Do I want to be able to flip, you know, the television on in the morning while I'm getting ready for work and see what I missed from the night before? Yeah. I mean, and that's coming from a purist standpoint. But I also realized that ESPN isn't killing ESPN. What's killing ESPN is the Internet. So if ESPN wants to survive, you're, you're right. They're going to have to switch to a Dan Lebertard type format, you know, a Barstool, a, you know, Bleacher Report, um, Boston Sports Journal type thing, because the Internet makes the highlights available so that ESPN, let's face it, they're the floppy disk <laughs> of sports. They're becoming obsolete. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And it's happening regionally. I mean, uh, I know you listened to WEEI as a kid. Uh, I had it on every day, you know. I loved Kirk Minahan, and I, th- I know you don't like Kirk Minahan as a sports purist. But I, th- I think, you know, the dichotomy of Kirk Minahan is important to talk about because he doesn't know shit about sports, you know. He knows enough to get through a show. But I think the reason why uh, someone like a Kirk Minahan is so popular is because what I was getting at before, you need to merge culture, you need to merge the internet, you need to merge other things than just, uh, you know, 
the X's and O's of sports. You know, you need to relate it to every everyday life. Not everyone that wants to listen to a sports talk show um, is a X and O's, X's and O's guy. You know, some are just common viewers, and I think uh, I think ESPN obviously didn't get that. Um, but that's enough of ESPN. I don't want to give them too much publicity. Let's talk about our man Brady. I mean, what's going on? Uh, I knew we were going to touch upon this at some point, but just to backtrack for a second, because you piqued my interest with Kirk Minahan. Um, for those that don't know, I, I tend to think of Kirk Minahan as the Howard Stern of sports. Doesn't really know too much, but he, he likes to stir the pot. <laughs> so, you know, that's why, you know, him and Howard Stern are, you know, equals in terms of their missions the same but their platforms different sure. speaking of howard stern howard stern somehow landed brady as a guest and i think that's because brady has left the new england you know patriot way tight-lipped thing as a football fan am i gonna miss brady Sure. I mean, you know, as a New England fan, I guess I'm going to miss him more than anything else. But as a coach, I mean, I understand why the divorce looked as ugly as it did. I don't I don't blame Brady for wanting to leave and I don't blame Belichick for necessarily wanting to move on. Now, let's be honest. Do I think that Brady's being totally genuine when he says he has no hard feelings towards Bill Belichick? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I think it's crap, to be honest. I think they both have issues with each other, and I think that's why you saw that it was time for the change to be made. Now, the interesting thing is I think next year you're going to see more Brady shirts in the stands, and it may even be a 50-50 split of New England shirts versus Tampa Bay shirts. I mean, I saw a thing yesterday that said that jersey sales for Tampa Bay Buccaneers jerseys are higher in New England than they are down in Florida. And, you know, that, for me, stands to reason because, let's be honest, doesn't matter what color laundry he's wearing, he's always going to be remembered for, you know, 20 years of greatness that, by the way, I don't care who you are, I don't care how lucky people might get, you will never see the domination that you've seen over the last 20 years that you saw with... Brady and Belichick, and this whole argument of, you know, can can Brady do it without Bill? Can Bill do it without Brady? I think the one thing that Bill benefits from, and me as a sports fan benefits from, by Brady leaving, is not only is it good for the NFL, but let's be honest, Adam, if you've watched New England over the last 20 years, most of the time, by halftime, the games were over. Football is going to become 
fun again. Football is going to become great again in terms of viewership in New England because it's going to be that unscripted reality show that people always want sports to be. You're not going to know. What it's going to go back to is it's going to go back to hopefully something of the like of Drew Bledsoe, who anybody who knows me knows that, you know, I'm a Bledsoe fan through and through. But the one thing that I always appreciated about that whole thing was you never knew week to week whether they were going to win or not. With Brady, like I said, 90% of the time, you know, you knew by halftime that the game was over. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think to say that this is going to be good for the NHL is an understatement. Obviously, it's going to pure peak curiosity. People are going to have a renewed sense of interest in seeing if Tom can do it without uh, Belichick in New England and things like that. Um, but something just doesn't sit right with me, man. Uh, it seems very disingenuous to me on Brady's part uh, to go to a place like Tampa Bay, which is so rich in football history, isn't it? They have such a, a dominating history. I mean, come on, man. Tampa Bay, what, what kind of history uh, in a football sense do they have? I mean, it just seems, it just seems not genuine to me that he would be interested in Tampa Bay as a franchise, as a winning franchise, as a place where he has a vested interest in helping them succeed. Um, part of me wonders how much of an influence Giselle had in this decision. And obviously when you're talking uh, equity and relationships, you know, uh, this is 2020, right? Um, if this was 10 years ago or even, you know, longer, um, we would be talking about how uh, crazy it was for Brady to even take Giselle's um, uh, suggestions into mind. You know, he's the breadwinner, obviously, but that's, but that's not reality. You know, obviously Giselle uh, makes multi-millions of dollars on her own. So my question is, how much of a influence did she have in this decision? Part of me thinks that, you know, she was sick as hell of this winter in New England. She's sick of the cold. She's sick of the old-fashioned traditions. Um, Florida is such a cool place for a model, isn't it? You know, it's, it's warm. She can do her thing. She can advance her career. Um, so part of me wonders what her influence was, if not all. Well, I mean, just think of it geographically that, you know, it's like 600 some odd miles closer to Brazil. So let's be honest. Um, you know, did it work for her? I mean, other advantages for her, obviously. So. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I think that she definitely had more of an influence than Tom's willing to admit, simply because, I mean, not that not that I live by this motto, but you know what they say, happy wife equals happy life. And rumor has it, you know, on the Howard Stern show, Brady even mentioned how Giselle wrote him a letter basically saying, X, Y, and Z needed to change within their marriage because she was no longer happy. So it forced him to reevaluate, you know, his situation. Now, from a football standpoint, do I think he was already, you know, starting to get unhappy? Of course. I mean, 
you've been with anybody, you know, whether it be personally or professionally for as long as 20 years, you, you're going to, you're going to start to get stale. Um, but I think she definitely pushed him over the edge. Now, as a 42-year-old quarterback, I can honestly say he probably wasn't expecting to transform how athletes are nowadays in terms of, you know, you mentioned it. Ten years ago, a 42-year-old quarterback wouldn't be what Tom Brady is. Ten years ago, if you were 42 years old, Hell, if you were 37, you would have already been out of the league by, you know, four or five years by now. You know, so Brady, I guess, is really, truly a trendsetter in terms of, you know, being the anomaly of the NFL. And, you know, I think she ultimately did probably influence his decision at least 85% of the way. Oh, if not all. And I think what you were talking about, um, you know, alluding to the fact that he was tired of these old New England traditions kind of gives way to him doing the Howard Stern interview. I think that's really telling because uh, he would never in a million years do an interview with Howard Stern when he was on the Patriots. I mean, uh, in in New England, uh, Howard Stern's considered lowbrow. He's considered... uh, uh, disgusting, uh, sexual deviant, you know? So in this old stuffy, uh, elitist New England crowd, that wouldn't float. That just wouldn't work. But in Florida, it plays completely. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I think that you're going to see a whole bunch of stuff come out from Brady's perspective that you wouldn't have seen up here anyway. Oh, but absolutely. I, I think that Tom is being totally disingenuous in this sense of the quote-unquote patriot way that he so despises is essentially saying in a lot of ways he despises who he was because let's be honest, he was the co-captain, as it were, or the co-catalyst of what the patriot way became. There wasn't, you know, there is no Patriot way without, you know, Brady being involved. So for him to play the quote-unquote innocent victim, you know, is totally disingenuous. Right. And we were hearing reports that this was about money, about the contract. Do you see any signs that that was true from uh, his contract in Tampa Bay? No, because it's the same as... Exactly. It's the same as the Drew Brees contract minus the fine print. The, the problem that Tom had, and, you know, I believe it to be true, is the fact that New England came back to him last year and said, yeah, we'll give you this bonus, but it's all in incentives. But let's be honest, any sports fan could see with the naked eye that he wasn't going to reach those incentives with the talent that he had around him. And I think truthfully, if Belichick was doing his do- doing his job as he should have been, now I'm speaking as a coach. Sometimes we know that coaching can be 
difficult. I think that Bill truly wanted to move on from Brady probably two, three, four years ago. And I use this as an example in the argument all the time. If Jimmy Garoppolo had not gotten hurt during Tom Brady's suspension for the deflate gate, which wasn't even a real issue, which that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. <laughs> but if, if Jimmy Garoppolo had not gotten hurt during that four-game suspension, Tom Brady, and you heard it here on this podcast first, Tom Brady would have been the next Drew Bledsoe. He never would have seen the field again. Why? Because Jimmy Garoppolo was adapting to the system the same way Tom Brady did. And guess what? They were winning at a younger and cheaper option, which is better for the overall business model. Right. In a, in a lot of ways, they definitely stymied uh, Garoppolo. Uh, he was obviously succeeding. He was much like Bledsoe, much like uh, Brady in the fact that, you know, he was an all-American quarterback. He was a good-looking guy. He fit the bill in New England. And I think this uh, this scared Tom, you know. He was getting scared. There was a younger, better version in the making of him, and he wanted to drive him out of town. And, uh, you know, you said that they were set up for failure, you know, two or, or Tom was, you know, kind of pushed out two or three years in the making. But I think this was never more evident than last year. Um, I'm going to take it one step further. I think that they kind of set him up for failure in a sense. Uh, obviously, there is no um, support. Um, I think their defense was inflated. I don't think it was as good as everyone said it was. Um, he had no receivers. He had no offensive help. Um, the whole Antonio Brown situation was, uh, it's, it's kind of sketchy looking back on it, how it all played out. Um, how much of an impact do you think Antonio Brown could have had if he stayed on the team and everyone looked past his transgressions? Adam, you just literally stole the bonus question out of my brain. Because I guess my question is taking that whole Antonio Brown thing a step further was, you know, I think that's when you really publicly started to see that this was the end for Brady in a New England uniform. Now, for those of you that don't know, he mentioned right in the Howard Stern interview that he was considering, you know, leaving New England even before – the season started basically saying he knew that it was going to be his last year. But I think you saw the excitement when Antonio Brown was signed because for him as a quarterback, he was probably sitting there going, okay, I now have talent I can work with. But then, you know, when you look into the political aspect of, why, you know, people speculate why Antonio Brown was like, oh, from Brady's perspective and even a lot of fans' perspective is he was never, you know, never technically convicted of anything. And in this country, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, especially when you have an owner that was, let's face it, painted in a dark light 
prior to that. So are you alluding to the Hernandez story? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm alluding to the, um, oh, okay. the, gotcha. the day spa <laughs> story. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it would be disingenuous to say that Antonio Brown didn't have an impact because I think it did. Now, in terms of what it would have done in a positive way had he stayed, obviously I don't think Julian Edelman was healthy. I think that, you know, you missed Gronkowski probably even more than they anticipated because they got nothing out of Matt Lacoste. They got nothing out of Ryan Izzo. I mean, they only combined for nine catches and 82 yards over the you know, season, and then you had Grandpa Ben Watson. So, obviously, it would have added another weapon, and it would have allowed Edelman to be open and be the true slot guy that he's designed to be. But And then again, in my personal opinion, you've gotten way more out of Edelman over the first nine, ten years of his career than you ever should have expected out of a seventh-round pick who, by the way, was a quarterback. Right. So, you know, but if Antonio stayed, I think that you might have gotten out of the first round. I still don't know because I think you're right. The defense was more of a product of the divisional, you know, toilet bowl that the Patriots play in every year, you know. And I think that they might have had a chance of getting out of the first round. But I think when you as an athlete don't have your heart in something, and you know this because we've dealt with it personally on our level too, when your heart's not in it, it doesn't matter what you have around you. You're not going to be successful. So I think ultimately success should have been measured on the fact that even if Antonio was there, I don't think that they would have gone nearly as far as they should have because Brady looked miserable. Right. And I think looking back at Antonio Brown, unfortunately, he was was a pawn. He was a chess piece, you know. He was given uh, to Brady by Kraft to appease him. Um, You know, but but looking back, Brown never was – a true Patriot. He was never going to be a Patriot. He didn't fit the bill. He didn't fit the Patriot model. Kraft has always been so um, reluctant of taking on someone like Antonio Brown uh, since the Hernandez fiasco, you know, he doesn't want to have another, um, uh, another day in court. You know, he doesn't want to have to be a witness in court again. Um, You know, the Patriot way is a way of you keep your mouth shut. You, uh, your life is football in the locker room, it's football, um, no outside distractions. And I think Antonio Brown is a distraction. And, and Kraft obviously knew this, but he needed to appease Brady. Um, but, you know, they were never going to keep Antonio Brown, you know. Um, but can, let's talk about this. Um, I want to call it this weird infatuation Brady has for Brown. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, 
Is it a is it a puppy or you know he wants to save this poor puppy? What is it? No, I I think I think honestly over the last few years Brady has I guess in one sense you could say evolved. I would make the argument that he evolved from what made him great, which was you know just being that blue collar guy, and I think that. The infatuation or the bromance, which is the popular term now, stems from Brady succumbing to his superstar expectations. Basically, what I'm saying on this Jock Talk podcast is Brady became the sellout that people praised him for not being for about, you know, 18, 19 years. He looked at it as, okay, I'm already getting screwed on my contract because they're giving me, you know, incentive-based bonuses that they know I'm not going to reach. So let me grasp, you know, let me grab onto the one last brass ring that I have in terms of toys in the toy chest. And even though the guy is a ticking time bomb, maybe because I am the greatest you know, quarterback of all time, maybe I can be the Dr. Phil or, you know, the Jose Baez of, you know, (laughs) quarterbacks and fix this guy. I I think so too. I think it was an ego thing. I think that he wanted to prove that Tom Brady was such a leader that he could um, make all these off field, uh, distractions just go away and he could prove that Antonio Brown um, was such a good player and Tom Brady is such a good mentor that he can make it work I think it's an ego thing and Antonio Brown on the flip side has stated that he wants to play in Tampa Bay with Brady well here's the problem with that Bruce Arians has already had it in Pittsburgh and Arians is a guy I look at Arians is a cross between Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll. He's got the laid back personality of Pete Carroll, but he's got, you know, moderate success of the Bill Belichick. He's somewhere in between the two. And I think he he values chemistry in the locker room just as much as he does, if not more than on-field chemistry. And I think that's the reason you will never see Antonio Brown in a Tampa Bay uniform. Now, conversely, I think that you will end up seeing one of our favorite people in New England, Rob Gronkowski, end up in Tampa. Really? Yep. Even with... um what he's doing now with the WWE, you don't think he's going to do that now instead? Adam, you're, you're an intelligent human being. You, you've known just as much as I have. That Gronkowski has teased so many times about getting back into the NFL, but he's made it very clear that he was unhappy his last year in New England. Now, who does that sound like? Tom <laughs> um, Brady. Right. But if he has a way of getting out of the New England shadow 
And let's be honest, you know, having Gronkowski-sized beach parties in Tampa while playing football in a much more relaxed environment than New England, I think, you know, I think you might see the reunion in Tampa. Because let's be honest, New England, as far as we know, essentially knows that Gronk isn't coming back. And it's like anything else. If you know you can get value for him, even if it's a second or third round pick, you know, why not use that to build for the future? Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I don't know if you know this, but I went to the University of Arizona with Gronk, um, you know, in 2006 and on. And he's a party guy. We all know this. He likes to be the center of attention. He likes to be, uh, you know, the guy at the pool party standing up, funneling 20 beers. Uh, Look at me. Um, You know, he was in the movie Honorage doing that. Um, So when I see this move to WWE, I think this fits him better, to be honest. I think football was a means to an end for him. It was something that he was naturally good at. He liked it. Um, But his heart wasn't in it 100%. He's a showman. He's a goofball. You know, he never liked the fact that he had to, uh, you know, bite his lip and he couldn't be funny and he couldn't be a a goofball and say all the crazy things in the post-game interviews. So I think this is a natural fit for him in the WWE. Um, I think that the NFL ruined his body, um, to be completely honest. And I think that uh, I think he's done with football, at least in a playing capacity. Um, when you talk about Tampa Bay being that, you know, party scene fit, I think that he uh, is still going to have some involvement with the NFL, obviously. Um, I think we've seen that him as a, you know, a talk, a talk radio guy or a, a color analyst doesn't work. He's not good at it. Um, he doesn't have the, the language abilities. He's, you know, he's, he's a bro, you know. Um, so I think the WWE is a great fit for him. Um, I'm not saying that uh, the NFL is going to, you know, go away. It's always going to be a part of him. I just don't see that in a playing capacity, especially not in Tampa Bay. Well, I mean, disagreements are always good for a podcast. So That's right. We shall see, right? But um, Congratulations. <laughs> where do we go from here in New England? What next? Um. Well, that that brings me to the topic of tanking. Um, you know, obviously, people are floating around the idea of tanking for a higher draft pick next year to potentially get the kid from Clemson, uh, Trevor Lawrence. I like him. I like him a lot. I like him, but I don't think Belichick has it in him to tank. I don't either. I'll never allow this team to do that. What do you think about Cam Newton? What do you what do you, what do you think about his fit? I don't want him anywhere near a New England Patriots football scene. I agree. I think he's too much of a sideshow. I think he is the Forrest Gump of football. <laughs> I think he look, I think he looks good. I think he fits the part, you know. But I I don't know that he's got the the football IQ. 
I would tend to agree with that. Well, I mean, the only other question is, what do you have for options? Yeah, and it's not looking like we have many, does it? <laughs> no, and, you know, that's the thing is, I I guess you could go with Justin Herbert from Oregon this year if you really wanted to. I'm not crazy about, you know, Brian Hoyer as the the stand-in guy for this year. But then again, the division is weak enough that, you know, you could probably still go nine and seven, ten and six, and still get in. Of course, a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, the expansion of the playoff system. Two more teams are going to get in. So, you know, an average team like what this year's New England is projected to be could potentially get in. Absolutely. And I think after this whole fiasco, um, projections, rankings, it's going to be all over the place. I think we're kind of going to have a reset almost in how uh, teams look how the standings will be, um, it, it'll be a free-for-all. So it'll, it'll definitely be interesting. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to monitor the situation closer as, you know, the days go by. But, I mean, again, this goes back to our core question at the beginning of this discussion was, you know, where does all this – happen amidst the coronavirus because let's be honest until the virus stuff subsides none of this stuff really matters right exactly and i think sports are going to change so dramatically i mean they they already have in terms of being able to you know meet with prospects and i mean roger goodell has already announced that he's going to do the draft like most people do a fantasy draft. He's going to announce draft picks from his basement, you know, and and that's the thing is we can project all this stuff all we want, but to bring it back full circle, the biggest free agent out there or, or the biggest contract incentive, quote unquote, is the theoretical, you know, battle that – we're fighting against, you know, the quarantine. Because that should be the biggest incentive right now is figure out, you know, how we can beat that and make that the sport of the world right now. You know, don't look at it as a negative, but look at it as a positive of how can we beat this thing. Absolutely, yeah. Sports have always been a distraction. Uh, but right now, like you said, we need to, you know, concentrate on the main mission and that's uh, beating this virus so we can get back to watching sports and getting back to um, a semblance of normalcy. You know, a lot of people are missing these distractions because it it's that what we just said. It's a distraction. It's entertainment. It lets you escape from your everyday reality. It lets you escape from depression, anxieties, troubles in your marriage, troubles in friendship troubles uh with your dog your pets whatever it's an escape right and uh unfortunately we don't have that right now so all we can do is uh 
it's jock talk and talk talk hypotheticals, you know. So it's it's yeah. good we have this. I but I definitely think that there's a lot of positive changes. As scary as that sounds, I think there's a lot of positive changes that can come out of this whole thing. And I think people are so focused on the what ifs, the unknown, the the potential negatives and you know, some of the reality in the negative right now is that they're not looking at the positives. But I think that, you know, there is a lot of potential for positive things to come out of this at the end of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes in these next couple of weeks. A lot of decisions will be needed to, you know, be made. And I think, uh, I think we're on the right track, hopefully. So, you know, we'll see. Well, guys, you know, Thanks for tuning in and, you know, be ready for episode two, which we will dive into how the disabled community adapts to the world through adaptive sports. And like I said, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next week, next Thursday. Or next Tuesday, I don't even know what day it is anymore because of the quarantine. Next Tuesday at 11. Absolutely. It's been real, guys. Signing off. Until next time. See you.